welcome to another edition of Navigating Life with Coach Lowe. Today, I have an amazing guest with me. Her name is Sydney Plant. She is a friend and sister of mine. And y'all know, I just have a plethora of different friend types and sisters in my life. And it is just such a joy to have her on. We were just chopping it up uh, <laughs> right before I came on. And Sydney is gonna share with us today about some of the struggles that she's had along her journey in corporate America with family, with relationships that ultimately led to alcoholism. And she looks absolutely nothing like the stereotypical alcoholic. But we are going to dig in. However, before we do, I am going to give Sydney an opportunity to just share with you, the audience, at Navigating Life with Coach Lowe, who she is, what's going on with her, where she comes from, what she's doing with her life in this season, and for her to welcome you into her life as well. Sydney, please take the stage, woman of candor. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Lolita. Thank you so much for having me and having my back in every way, whether it was a nice haircut and, and whip a do, a nice do, um, or, you know, being a host on the Women of Candor stage. So I certainly appreciate you and love you and love your energy. Um, Miss, let's get it at six o'clock in the morning. You know, you get that energy from the, from the, from the beginning of the day to the ending of the day. Uh, that's who Lolita is. You always rock that smile and that beautiful spirit. So thank you for having me on. Um, so as you mentioned, yes, I am a woman of candor, um, which means I'm a storyteller at heart. And I started a storytelling um, show with a partner and now I produce it by myself called Women of Candor. It, um, for those who aren't familiar with live storytelling, it's when you perform a true story based on your life. And um, I, I mean, it sounds very simple, but you know, a lot of, sometimes people think, oh, I need to do creative writing and make it up. Um, but it's true storytelling about um, something from your life. And uh, we created this platform for black women, especially um, because so many times in life, people really don't ask us, how are you doing? What do you think? How do you feel? Um, and just let it ride. Just let us, let, let us get it out. Let it, let us get our stuff off. And so by being a woman of candor, uh, we use that word candor. It just means open, honest, sincere. It's just being very flat footed about the truth and, you know, telling it like a TIE is, as we would say. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we use that word because I thought of it because a lot of times we are burdened with being considered the angry black woman, right? And candor is a word that isn't loaded. It isn't often used. Um, but I think it describes a lot of the women that I know it describes myself. You know, we're not, we don't mean any disrespect. It's just like, we're just keeping it real, if you will. And so accepting that aspect of ourselves as Black women, and then also giving ourselves the opportunity to speak openly and sincerely and honest with one another, um, so that's the show I do called Women of Candor. It's a podcast and a live show. And uh, I teach storytelling and I'm also a nonprofit fundraiser. So um, yeah, that's what I do. My life is about trying to provide opportunities for others, whether it be on stage or um, in life through healthcare education with my job as a fundraiser. 
absolutely. I I was just telling Sydney, I said something really um, that I, I wasn't expecting to say, but it was really along the lines of what she was just sharing. Uh, there, she's a very multifaceted, uh, she has her hands on a lot of different things. And what I was saying to her about her and us as Black women sometimes is that because we are often told that we are too much, I was saying to my sister that I don't need to dissect her, to digest her. I can take her with all that she is, the wholeness of her. And um, I think that I want somebody to hear that who's listening today. Sometimes you're told you're too much in the workplace. Sometimes even your family members, those who are closest to you, I was even convicted by that uh, because my daughter, she has a very exuberant, remarkable, outstanding, boisterous personality. But so do I. It is just not like hers. And so sometimes we have to, you know, own who we are and understand what that is and not put the extra pressure on each other because one of the things that we are talking the thing that we are here for today is to talk about Sydney's journey um, and her uh, the challenges that she has faced with uh, alcoholism. Sydney, you talked about being in the light of women of candor and being on the stage of comedy and storytelling, uh, both in New York, Chicago, and Dallas. So you have been live on stage, selling out all the whole show. You have been on that platform. And as I'm thinking about some of the stories that I've heard you tell, I'm like, oh, <laughs> Don't say nothing else. <laughs> it was just it was just interesting because you were so candid about telling your story. Although the stories were very much so real and related to life, you had a piece of comedy in there and the the audience was able to giggle a little bit here and there, but you were talking about real issues you were, I mean, real issues. And so what made you want to do storytelling? I mean, because this is real stories about real life. And although your stories really are thought provoking, they are, um, they kind of in your face and nobody playing with you. Let me tell you about this. <laughs> you know, they are just real. And so what, what made you want to get up in front of people? People are already judgmental, right? Right. But you're going to get up here and you're going to tell everybody your business. That's what we're telling me. Well, you know, it, it goes back to um, my recovery journey. And storytelling literally saved my life when I look on it, look back on it that way. And that's why it is such a mission of mine to um, help people tell stories. So I'm going to back up a little bit and just explain what I mean by that statement. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, 10 and a half years ago, one day at a time, I, um, I entered recovery and got sober from alcohol. And we can talk about what that looks like a little bit later, but as part of my recovery, when I was in treatment, they had us do like this worst case scenario um, writing exercise. 
where it was like, okay, if you relapse, let's start out with what would make you relapse and just write it. And then what next, what next, what next? And basically if you pick up a drink again and you keep following that along, um, you're going to end up dead in jail, you know, like ill, whatever. It's not going to end well for a person who's, who's an alcoholic. So we wrote that story out. Then we were able to write a story of like, what would be like if you didn't pick up a drink and kind of write that out. And that story is um, the one, the what if and where my life would go really kind of laid it out plainly for me as to what would happen. What was my trigger? You know, I remember saying I met a guy and to be comfortable, I would drink. You know what I'm saying? Like, I felt like that was something that would make me slip. Right. So that meant when I moved to New York, cause I got sober when I was in Chicago, I lived a block away from one of the hottest restaurants owned by a black, um, um, chef, a TV chef and in Harlem. And when I walked by after work, there were just throngs of black professionals in there mixing up at happy hour. And I couldn't go in there because I knew that was a threat to my sobriety. Right. So having written that out, kept me out of that, even though it, it stung every time I had to walk by, but I knew that it wasn't for me to go in there because I had written that story out. Then when you're in the recovery community, a lot of the um, work you do, if you're going to meetings with people in recovery, it's telling your stories to other, you're sharing your um, hope and, and wisdom and hope, strength, and experience with other people. So I had told facets of my story over and over and other over to other people, and other people told me theirs, and that's how we help heal one another. So from that vantage point, stories helped heal me. And then um, when I got to New York, I didn't end up taking storytelling. Um, I had witnessed storytelling in Chicago, but I did not um, go on stage because the place that I knew that was doing it was at a wine bar. So I had introduced a friend of mine that I had met at Second City in a um, sketch comedy class, and I had taken a couple um, improv classes. I introduced her to storytelling, and she was able to participate in the show, and I went to go see her. It was one of my first times going somewhere um, where it was a wine bar, and I couldn't drink. You know, wine was my drink of choice. So I didn't participate. That was one of the few things I knew that was happening this was like 10 years ago, uh, back in Chicago. So when I got to New York, I took a class called, uh, with a guy named Kevin Allison, who teaches, um, storytelling. And he had a podcast called risk and risk is about telling true stories that you would not tell to other people. So that was my foray into storytelling is getting up, telling your business. So I told my story, about sobriety. I was about two and a half years sober at that time. And so that was the first time I had got on stage and told people, broke my anonymity and told people that did not know me about um, my drinking. And uh, that was the vulnerability that I was introduced. Storytelling was introduced to me as something that was literally risky and being vulnerable. And so that has never left me because that was my initial training. We weren't just setting out to be funny or entertaining. We were setting out to share and um, to shock a little bit, but also just, just to be revealing. So that was my training. So I haven't given that up since, since I took that class. I love it. The other thing about it is that like what I felt when the the few the many times actually that I have been a part of the audience or shared the stage with you um as the host of Women of Candor, I 
felt like there were people in the audience who could relate, who felt like, wow, I am not alone in this thing. And she has the nerve to get up there and tell it, wow. You know, I, I loved that about the storytelling process and being a part of the audience able to kind of sit back and experience some of that wow factor, that shock factor, you know. And so one of the things that you talked about, you another project that you did, um, but I believe that this was, I don't know if this was in rehab or whether this was in um on your storytelling journey, you had mm -hmm. to make up a, a blues song mm -hmm. uh, for homework. And so I wanted you to share that song, that poem, however, you say you can't sing, <laughs> we will not put you through that. No, we are not gonna put anybody through that. <laughs> Video. Okay, <laughs> let me- um... Name anonymous. <laughs> no, we're not gonna put anybody through that. Um, so yeah, I was taking a, an improv class. Um, it was a diversity class taught by African-American women. It was a, a diverse group and, uh, they asked us to do a blues song for, um, for homework. And so I wrote this as, like you said, I can't sing. So it's more of a poem. And what I wrote was called the, she look fine blues. And I'll read it to you. I tried to take myself to rehab and they said, no, no, no. I try to take myself to rehab and they said, no, no, no. Cause I got a lot of struggles and I'm in a bad place, but I keep a little makeup and a smile on my face. Some folks show their hand, whether they win or lose. I'm the kind of gal with those, she look fine blues. They're not your light, bright, white, bold hues. I really got those, she look fine blues. I'm all right, keep it tight, out of sight, dark as night. See, I wear a big grin, whether I lose or win. Life can knock me hard, but I got a strong chin. Some folks think they wanna be in my shoes, just don't know, I got those she look fine blues. I play the game and I pay my dues, but I really got those she look fine blues. I'm all right, keep it tight, out of sight, dark as night. Now I ain't fake, but I always been cool. I'm a sassy, classy gal and I'm nobody's fool. See the gig and the life I choose, but they're colorblind to those she look fine blues. I ain't gotta act or stage a ruse. I simply got those she look fine blues. I'm all right. Keep it tight, out of sight, dark as night. Of course, I'm me and proud and I'll say it loud, but the sun's giving way to a dark gray cloud. See, wine is fancy cause it ain't booze, but it can cause those she look fine blues. It was a glass, now it's bottles by the twos. I really got those she look fine blues. I'm all right, keep it tight, out of sight, dark as night. I'm all right, keep it tight, out of sight, dark as night. Whoa, 
Thank you. I, every time I hear that, I get chills. But, Thank you. So, so it's a couple of, at first it was just one. I'm all right. Keep it tight. Dark is night. Out of sight. Those were, that was the original. But then you talked about wine turned in, wine named booze. But now it's been turned from bottles of tools for the wine. That is just, oh my God. Thank you for Thank you. sharing that poem because I believe that often people like to minimize their involvement with, with alcohol, not recognizing that, okay, just because it's wine, I just had somebody recently tell me, well, what is wine? Because I noticed that there was an increase. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, hey, just want to put this out there. I think that this is a lot, but you're real, real grown. And so I, I bagged back because they were not open and receptive. So, mm -hmm. you know, you back off and you let people be who they are. So that leads me to ask you the question, what was it that made you notice that there was an issue? Because you talked about you being single, living alone, and all of these different uh, things that kept you hidden because the I'm all right, keep it tight, out of sight, um, dark as night. All of those speak to being hidden, you mm -hmm. know, um, maintaining your mm -hmm. anonymity, mm -hmm. you know, but then here you are, you healed because you came out. And so often my daughter and I were having a conversation about generations the other day. And mm -hmm. she was like, mom, you guys and the, and the generations before you, were generations where you were told to be quiet, to act right, to keep your mouth shut, no matter what was going on. And what I know today about those things, because I was never quiet, I would just get in trouble for saying what I needed to say, you know, go figure, you know. But there were a lot of times that I didn't say what I needed to say or what I wanted to say because I didn't want to experience the repercussions. So here you are, you are, you're hitting and you're hidden in plain sight. You are here, you right here, everybody can see you, but no one notices. So what, what helped you to say, okay, I'm having a problem. This is real. Um, so I think there were what I call a series of indignities, things that happen that I'll speak about. But then when it came to this poem or this song, I was taking an improv class and stage and you act out scenes with people and it's totally off the top of your head, totally just, you're making it up as you go along. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the moment, if you haven't done improv, you don't understand that, like when you see people, they're like, oh, they must have rehearsed that. No, you're really just quickly coming up with stuff, whatever's coming in your mind. And when I was doing a scene before I got this assignment, 
I remember just being angry on stage <laughs> and some stuff came out of me and I was like, who said that? I didn't say that. Who said that? You know? And like my emotions were just raw and angry. And I was like, Ooh, what is that? You know, coming out of you. And then by the time I did this song, it literally looked me back in the face. And I wrote that. I didn't think about it. I just wrote it. Wow. And when you write something like that and you're saying, it was a glass and I was bottled by the twos. Like it was looking me back in my face. So before we, when I pulled this up for today, I literally had to go back to my email from March 6, 2010 that I wrote to my improv um, teacher and said, look, I can't finish the class. Here's my assignment. I got to go to rehab. Like literally that, when I looked up that email, I was, I literally had decided that I had to go. And the reason why I referenced, they, I tried to take my re, myself to rehab and they said, no, 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 was two parts. Number one, um, I was in a shoe store on State Street in Chicago and I heard Amy Winehouse's song Rehab for the first time. You know, I tried to, they tried to make me go to rehab and I said, no, no, no. And when I heard that song, something clicked in my head about the word rehab. Mm-hmm. And it was like one of those things where it's like, oh, that's a sign. You know, it was just, it just hit me like, girl, you need to go to rehab, <laughs> you know? Um, so it was little signs like that that kept happening. But this poem and this exercise hit me in the face in a way that nothing couldn't. And then um, I didn't take improv again until about four or five years ago because I was afraid of what would come out of me, to be honest with you. Yeah, I literally was very nervous when I went back to improv because that was my experience. It was like, ah, you know, I'm gonna put it all out there. I don't know what'll come out of me and I don't know what'll come out of other people. So I was really afraid to take improv again. So that's one thing. And then going back to um, me being hidden in plain sight, I was the kind of person, I, I was single. I was living in Chicago by myself. I lived in a high rise, um, little convertible apartment or whatever, but you go out in the city when you're young and you're just having fun. Nobody comes to your big house. Like down here in Texas, you, you're out in the streets, you go to happy hour. So I probably was going to happy hour like three times a week or something, hanging out on the weekends, going to the wine bars. And it was very classy. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like, I was in the D.A.R.E. program at high school. I wasn't a drinker when I was young. I wasn't a partier in college. You know, I was always like, I was the Black Student Alliance president in college. And I always kept up appearances and I was always a leader. So I was never the club girl or anything like that. Then I was the church woman. And, you know, so that was never my M.O. So I would go out and do happy hours with colleagues and friends. And I kept up with their drinking what people didn't see is that I went home and would drink more by myself. Mm -hmm. And so it went from social drinking, what appeared to be my social drinking was also compounded by going home in depression, drink, drinking out of depression. I was in a very stressful position at work. I was under a lot of stress. And so what drinking did to me was if you imagine when those old radiators that you used to warm the house up with, we turn that valve and it just go that's what alcohol did to me after a hard day. I would just get a glass of wine and drink it and it would just, and all that tension and built up stress or anxiety or whatever, it would just go away pretty quickly. And then I could just kind of zone out through the rest of the night, go to sleep. Um, 
And it just progressively got worse. And I had different family issues. My mom was sick. My dad ended up getting in a bad accident and was sick. So there were other pressures that were situational that my drinking just escalated to kind of numb what was going on in my life. Um, now realizing that I'm a person who struggles with depression and anxiety. So that was my unhealthy way of managing depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I had a conversation with someone recently who divulged to me, like, I'm having trouble drinking right now. And so we had a talk and, you know, I can tell she wants that valve release. Yeah. And I said, you know, I suggest you go to your doctor. Cause you know, she was on, you know, I'm just shout out to those who uh, take medication to those who don't want to do what works for you. But for me, I've um, had to take antidepressants. Um, it's medically supervised. It does not give me that, you know, that release. I'm not getting high or anything. It doesn't work like that. But when you get in a pit so low, I said, I, you, you want to get medically supervised to handle this overload that you're dealing with right now. Cause it's not like, you're not gonna be able to take the woman I'm talking about to coffee and cheer her up. She got serious life stuff going on. And sometimes we all do. So it's, you're talking about weeks and weeks and months and months and months of um, sadness, depression, anger, resentment, all those feelings that you said we're taught to bottle or the people around us are not equipped to deal with. Right. So when talking to one person, I said, it's very hard to get healing when you're dealing with unhealed people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a lot of people aren't equipped to deal with that. So when it came to me realizing I had a problem with alcohol, I decided to go to treatment, um, which did coincide with um, mental health care. And I've been in therapy for the better part of 10 years and I go every week, you know? And so um, I don't expect the people in my life to necessarily be able to contend with all of my issues when I know they got their own issues doesn't mean we're not there for one another, but if you have the resources, there are professionals out there that can help you. So I sought professional help and, um, the, the help from those around me in the recovery community, but I don't, I'm sorry, I went on a long tangent, but, um, that's how it started for me. And that's kind of how I got through it was just recognizing that this is, this is bigger than me. This is bigger than a girl's night out. This is bigger than a good talking to, you know? Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So let's, so let's dig in a little deeper because Mm -hmm. you, you talked about a number of things. You talked about the stresses that Mm -hmm. uh, come. You talked about the elevation of those stresses compounding upon one Mm -hmm. another. You mm-hmm. talked about in the in the poem, you said, I tried to go to rehab and they said, no, no, no. But in reality, that's what really happened. When you showed up at rehab, they said, you, you look fine. Right. <laughs> they <laughs> said, yeah, they said, you look fine. Like, uh, put your hands out. Your hands are shaking. You know, I wasn't showing physical signs of withdrawal. You know, the lady looked at me, I had on makeup, um, I had on clothes, I had been to work, you know, I was just looking cute like every other day, I painted on a face. And she was just like, you look all right. And I'm like, but I'm not okay, you know? And so I had to show her some pictures of what my life was like, literally. And she was like, okay, we'll help you. (laughs) 
and um well, talk about that unpack that for me what yeah what, i was just like down to like maybe one couple i left on my sofa for a couple months i was just like barely functioning but i looked very functional i think if nobody knew that's the other thing nobody ever told me like you told your friend girl you might be drinking too much nobody has ever um so it was really hidden in that way i didn't live with anybody so i wasn't hiding bottles my bottles were just all over the place yeah it was all over the place um so uh it was really dark because i did not view alcohol poisoning as something a 35 year old professional black woman could get i thought it was what happens to white girls on spring break mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying but when i went to treatment um you know the girls i went to college with they would party and get alcohol poisoning you know like you would hear those stories so that looked like a college age girl thing to me that did not look like black woman stuff and so when I went to treatment and they were like, well, how much were you drinking? I told them, they were like, you could have really hurt yourself. Wow. You could have got alcohol poisoning. It, it never occurred to me that alcohol poisoning happened to fully grown functioning people. That was like party problems. And I was just having a really sad party by myself. And, you know, when I told my mom, like, I got to go to treatment again, there was a lot of shock and disbelief like like straight up disbelief nobody ever told me like we don't believe you but they really didn't believe me and because they didn't see it my mom maybe has seen me take one drink in my life um when i would come down here to texas you know my family my sister and brother-in-law pastors nobody could tell that when i would come down here for a week at christmas somebody had given them a basket and there was this little bottle of wine that was left over that was like in the pantry nobody drank it because nobody drank <laughs> but it was still just sitting there. And alcoholism or addiction is like an obsession of the mind. Mm -hmm. And I would be obsessing over that little bottle, that little bitty bottle of wine and that, that pantry would be driving me insane because I wanted it so bad. They couldn't see that. Right. Or I was starting to have physical withdrawals that last year um, before I went to treatment, I was here in the winter and I was putting batteries in a camera for my niece and my hands were shaking because I hadn't drunk in a couple of days. And it was like, oh, what's wrong with your hands? Oh, this is just small, you know? And I'm starting to get very, very paranoid. Like everybody can see this, but they really don't know. But my paranoia at that point was like, um, but nobody knew. They, they had no reason to know. Um, so that was part of the hiding it, the ugliness of it. Um, and there were things that was she looks fine. Yes, they told me I look fine. But then there were other instances where I thought for certain this is going to be apparent. And when I told my first story on stage, I told something I said I would never tell anybody, which was I had gone to New York and um, I went with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra Young Professionals Board. We went to Carnegie Hall and a friend of mine was in law school. I went to a party with him. So it was a short weekend. And I drank the whole time I was there, um, went out to brunch with a guy and drank that morning on a Sunday, went to the airport and drank because I'm an alcoholic. So I drank at the bar before I got on the plane at the bar. And then I got on the plane and I drank some wine. And um, 
when I landed, I needed to go to the bathroom after all the drinking. And I had already got my luggage off the carrier, the, the turnstile and um, the conveyor. And I was like, hmm, I'm not taking my new luggage into the bathroom. That's disgusting. You know, like, mm-mm. So I just, you know, I had a standard about myself. And I got my need to go self to the bathroom in the taxi and went downtown Chicago but before I took myself home, I asked the taxi driver to stop at a gourmet liquor gourmet market. And I went in to go get some wine. And instead of going home and going to the bathroom, rushed back out, got in a taxi. I only lived about three blocks away. They pull up. I grab my stuff. I go through the lobby, get on the elevator, and I urinated on myself. Because I chose to go get more alcohol because it was a Sunday night. And I knew that it was going to be, and it was winter. It was real cold. And I was like, you know, if I don't go get my alcohol now, then I'm not going to have anything. You know, I was not a person. I bought a wine rack, but it was never no wine on it. <laughs> that was so cute. That was so funny. <laughs> I bought a wine rack. That thing was empty, okay? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was empty. It's funny now. But uh, <laughs> So, um, yeah, I got on the elevator and I'm like standing there and I just like, I, I couldn't hold it. And I was the first residential floor. I was on 14 and I just urinated in the corner of the elevator and it had cameras and everything. So after I went in the apartment and it was kind of like pulling myself together and everything, I called down to the front desk and I was like, hi, I had an accident on the elevator and the woman was like, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, I urinated on myself. She was like, okay. Then I got off the phone. I'm like, okay, I must be drunk because I didn't need to tell on myself. <laughs> but I was like, I'm never telling my mama. I'm never telling anybody. It's the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. And here I am telling the world. Um, and that's what recovery will do for you. Uh, praise God for uh, getting rid of shame and guilt. And then um, two days later on Tuesday, I was coming in through the backside of my building and the woman who had been at the front desk when I called out Monday, a Sunday night was sitting there and I had just been like dreading seeing this lady because I'm like, she is going to know I'm this low class drunkard. And I'm walking to the lobby and that lady said, hey girl, she was like, I was thinking about you. I peed on myself the other day too. I cried and cried. And she starts telling me how nobody came down to the desk to relieve her when she was working the front desk. So she urinated herself. So she looked at me as somebody who had just, um, just needed to go really badly. She didn't understand that it was the alcohol that was involved that made me make that choice for myself. So even the extent that I had urinated on myself in public still got, I still got the benefit of the doubt and like nobody could see it. Like nothing I could do uh, was bad enough for people to see. And I knew down deep in my heart that I had about probably 60 or 90 days before something bad was going to happen. I was going to be found out by someone somehow. Um, my drinking has started. In, I never was a daytime drinker, but I remember I was going, again, I didn't like my job. It was very stressful. And I had a um, job interview and I said to myself, I'm not going to drink before this interview. And the night before the interview, I, I drank. I couldn't keep that promise to myself. And at that point, I just had no confidence in my own abilities to not drink. I had confidence in my skills 
who I was as a person? Could I trust myself taking on this new role? Absolutely not. And so when the people called me back for a second interview, because I got it, um, I just didn't respond. I did because I was like, I'm going to blow up my career. If I take this job, it was um, fairly high profile. Um, I would have been pretty high up in a, in a pretty notable organization. Um, I would have ruined my, my reputation in my career had I, um, had I gone to that job in the state that I was in that at that time. I would have probably wrecked my career. So, Sid, let's talk about red flags because, okay, here are all of these telltale signs, if you will. You go to rehab and the people say, you don't look the part. You had to show proof of how you were living behind the scenes in order for it to be creditable, you mm -hmm. know? So then... Even you talked about how even the people that were in group or whatever, as you were going through the rehab rehabilitation <laughs> process, how they felt like you were an imposter because you did not look the part. You still got up in the mornings. You still took care of your image, your physical self. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that you were very accustomed to and I would even venture to say that you had not progressed to that level yet, but it sounds like, according to you, in time, that was like your next step. Yeah. So, you know, you hear people talk about like, you know, you have to hit rock bottom. So I am a person on the, the appearance of having what they would call a high bottom. Okay. I wasn't in jail. I didn't have a DUI, you know, like I wasn't a driver at the time. Um, so like I didn't have a DUI or any of those things that may be uh, classic rock bottom moments for people. I didn't have children that were at risk or taken from me. You know, there's a lot of drama that goes on with addiction a lot of times before people really hit rock bottom. So comparatively, um, I had a high bottom. I had a, what they call a lot of yets. I didn't, I hadn't gotten arrested yet. I hadn't lost my job yet. I hadn't lost family members yet, 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 yet. So I was, I was a person with a lot of yets. Um, sorry, could you repeat the question? I'm, I'm okay. So I was just talking about the red flags. Oh, red flags. I'm sorry. Help us to, yeah. help us to understand what that would look like because you looked so good. You, you didn't look the part to nobody. Not even to the people that were trained to understand what it should look like. You didn't have the shakes. You, right. you looked presentable. You were still in the yet. I think the first thing for people listening to this show, if not for, for the addict, right? I'm going to talk about two different people. Okay. For the person who has the problem, listen to yourself. So there were things that in rec I could re rec in recollection, I'm like, oh, that was pretty telling. So I remember being in the bathroom one day and I was putting on my makeup and I told a colleague, like, I feel like a clown putting on makeup. Like I, I didn't feel like I was putting on makeup to be pretty. I felt like I was like painting on my face. Mm -hmm. So if you feel like putting on makeup is painting on a happy face, maybe you're not happy. You know what I'm saying? Like listen to the things you're saying and doing just like I did with that poem. Like you have to listen to yourself. You have to monitor your life and maybe get a little outside of yourself. Then if you are obsessing about it, and you're thinking about when you can get your next drink 
you know, when, whether it was going to get my nails done, going to a show, a concert, whatever, I always was in position to get the next drink. Always, always. It was very difficult for me to be sober because everything I did, including, you know, the nail shops, this was 10 years ago, but they, in Chicago, they were starting to serve wine and stuff like that. My hairdresser, 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, here's some shots. Like everywhere I went, there was alcohol. So look at your life. Is your life, um, even if it's done in an acceptable way, are you a little bit excited? About, are you choosing to be in the company of alcohol and partaking? And it doesn't mean you're drinking every day. For me, I was a daily drinker. For some people, it doesn't. But if you have an obsession with a substance um, and you need that substance and you're relying on that substance to get through, then, then you might need to look at that. Mm -hmm. um, as far as people who are looking from the outside in, change behavior. You know what I'm saying? Um, I was withdrawing a lot. Um, I would say change behavior, like you said, consumption. Um, is a person looking depressed or not themselves? Are they overcompensating? Are they the life of the party every time? You know, because alcohol, it's a depressant, right? And I was a depressed person. So it just made me even more depressed. For some people, the, because of the lifestyle they lead, they might be the life of the party every week. Somebody else might be an angry drunk. So if you know a person, is there a change in behavior accompanied with the alcoholism? Is there hiding? Is there drinking alone? Um, is there some facet of shame or something that person would or should be ashamed about when they're drinking? I think those are the red signs. I mean, the signs of it. But from my story, I really want to empower the person who has the addiction to recognize it. Because I think, like I said, being single, it was something that I didn't realize how dangerous it was. A lot of the people I went to treatment with, they had spouses or children that were putting, you know, like signals up to them or bosses. You need to cut this out. This is your last chance. I'm going to leave you. Mom, I hate you, whatever. Like they were getting feedback externally that was telling them they had an issue. In my case, I went to treatment with people with, um, with professionals who were at risk of losing their careers, doctors, nurses, nurses, pilots, uh, lawyers, pi uh, dentists, all kinds of people who were at the point they were going to lose their career right. if they did not come to treatment. So they were sent to treatment. And these same people would not go to treatment for their families. But when it came to their jobs, yeah. they were willing to go, right? So those were the kinds of people I was in treatment with. So when you talk about how they were looking at me like I was phony, I didn't get sent. So I like basically took myself to maximum security prison for writing a bad check, you know, because <laughs> I volunteered for this. And the first day there, I was like, what have you done? It was very frightening. I'm a person who um, prefers my solitude and my own company. So then having gone from living alone for years to living with other people um, who, have, who are coming off of substances, it was traumatic for me. Um, so it's like anything, whether you're working out or something, there's going to be some pain involved. Mm -hmm. There are people who have, have what they call this pink cloud or purple cloud. When you get sober, the life is great. Everybody was looking like they was at Club Med. Their skin color was coming back. They were <laughs> like losing weight. They were feeling great. 
I was miserable when I first got sober. I mean, absolutely miserable. I've never been the same weight. I gained weight. I lost my self-esteem, whatever, whatever the alcohol was creating in me or whatever, not dealing with my issues was doing and covering up for me. It was like people dug up all my stuff and it was like, bye. And so it took me a while to get myself back together, um, which I found through my creative outlets, but it was a long time. I'm happy that I did not have that immediate um, joy factor because then it, that bubble kind of busts for people and they go back and relapse. Mm-hmm. I had to fight the whole time. That meant I had to go back to that very stressful job where I was getting like dogged out to my face. Like they took my position from me and put me in a smaller office and I had to walk by my old staff members. I'm talking about being publicly ridiculed. People like look at me in my face at meetings and <laughs> like just straight up dogging me to my face. They did everything they could to diminish me and demean me. Um, when I got back from treatment, again, I went, I went on the family medical leave. So that's another thing. It was covered by my insurance. I did not have to pay for anything but my housing. Um, if you cannot afford treatment, then you can always go to substance abuse meetings. There's a very supportive network. You can go to individual counseling. There are very, a lot of different avenues. I chose all of them, but um, I didn't, my life didn't get better because I decided I didn't want to drink. I had to deal with everything without drinking life didn't change right because I took you know several weeks off many 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 weeks off and came back then people was no more nice to me (laughs) they were worse um and so that meant being in Chicago I would have to leave work at lunch and go to a meeting and pop back in the work and finish the rest of the day and go to a meeting um so I probably went to meetings like five days a week um, in the recovery community set. set. Um, my friends were in recovery. Uh, I had to change my whole lifestyle. There was no more happy hours. You know, you have to cut some things off in order to have the life you want. Right. And um, I'll tell you one thing, the life I have is better than that life I would have had if I kept drinking. I'm alive. Amen. I'm alive. I got through it all. I'm getting through it all. I still deal with some, some of the same things, but I don't drink over it. And what they will tell you is there's not a problem in this world that a drink will um, help cure. Right. <laughs> you know, it won't. It's, it's still there. You're yeah. still there. Your issues are still there. And like I said, I still go to therapy every week, faithfully. <laughs> um, I really applaud that because there are so many people that don't know the value of having um, a professional to help you. Let it be a a, um, a counselor, a coach like myself, mm-hmm. a, um, a a pastor, a some someone who has the ability and the tools to help you to navigate some of the things that you may encounter. So even when you were talking about um, your life did not change, the alcohol is what changed. You dropped that piece of it, but life was still the same. To navigate that process, you have to have some things in place in order to be successful. 
what did that look like for you? So you said you got counseling and you're still 10 years in and you go weekly. I applaud that, Sydney, because the world would have us particular, it Black people. Mm -hmm. We do not get the help that we need and we try to navigate circumstances on our own and we find the cycle and the saga continues. It's right. just over and over again, we see some of the same outcomes because the behaviors haven't changed and we're using the same tools, temporary fixes. Right. Um, so for me, let's be real. I had anxiety as a child, as a teenager. Um, I was on anxiety medicine in high school, right? Okay. So my chemical makeup and just, you know, knowing what I know, probably um, some of it genetically, uh, depression, anxiety, all those factors, I think are part of my chemical makeup, right? So I, I do take um, antidepressants. I have anxiety medicine that I take periodically, probably every quarter for a week or less. If life just gets extremely stressful, sometimes I grin and get through it. Other times I take it. And then after a couple of days, I'm straight and I don't, I forget that I even took it. It's like, oh yeah, I haven't taken anxiety medicine in a couple of weeks. So for me, that when it comes to functioning, then I know that I need my anxiety medicine. Some people might need it daily. So I am under medical supervision. You know, these are, I'm not taking, you know, Adderall and Xanax and stuff, Xannies. I'm not popping Xannies on the street. I'm under yeah. medical supervision. Um, and I'm also under weekly supervision with my therapist. My therapist and I have been with her three years, my current therapist. Um, just so you know, if you seek a therapist, you may not like the first one. If you seek uh, antidepressant, antidepressant, you may not like the first one. This is work, right? So um, that's one thing. So for me, the, the, the professional help helps. People help. So the type of therapy I got was cognitive behavioral therapy because there's different modes of behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. So for people who want to know what cognitive behavioral therapy looks like, it is very skills-based because if you're using alcohol or some substance as a coping mechanism, that means you might have trouble coping and you need skills to help you cope that fit your lifestyle. So for me, early on, it was like, I went to therapy on Thursday, Sydney, what are you doing for the weekend? Because isolation was a huge problem for me. So I'd have to present what I was going to do that weekend to be with people or to do things. So that is a skill that I learned like this past Sunday, I was like really coming off of a stressful season at work, like a couple months of like round the clock work, very stressful work. Plus then after thinking it was over that Monday morning after the big hurrah, realizing by 8.30 when I thought I was about to get a break and lead into my vacation that I was going to have to fire someone that week. Mm -hmm. So I'm already at the height of my anxiety where it usually is every year. Plus I had to layer on the anxiety of going through something very unpleasant um, as being betrayed, as needing to then take someone's livelihood from them. They earned it, but I'm just saying it's, it's still not a pleasant thing. So I had to go through and Google that week stresses of firing people. Like I literally have to do the research. Like why am I under so much stress and anxiety? And then I learned that this is normal. 
Mm-hmm. Like a lot of things you feel are normal. It is as stressful for the person firing somebody sometimes as it is for the person that's doing it. Number one, you're worried about what's happening to them. Number two, you feel bad that you got to do it. And number three, now you got to worry about their work, right? Yeah. So it normalized how I was feeling. It did not take the feeling away, but it helped me normalize it. By last Sunday, this past Sunday, um, we're on Friday now. I was like, okay, this is too much. I'm stressed out. I'm anxious. I I was waking up stressed and anxious. That's when I know it's really bad. And I was like, I'm calling off of Facebook. I'm not talking to anybody. That is my first default. Like, leave people alone. Don't mess with anybody. People are awful. Get away from that. You know? <laughs> so that is my default, right? And I'm like, do I call my therapist? I'm like, you see her once a week. What are you going to do? Call her every day? She'd let me if I wanted her to, but that's not realistic. So I said, okay, I remember back to that thing I wrote when I was in treatment about what my life would look like when it was good. And I wanted to start like a support group for black women. So I created a support group for black women and just went through Facebook Messenger and reached out to about 25 women and said, hey, Tuesdays and Saturdays, meet me on Zoom if you want to talk. And that instantly made me feel better because I had something to look forward to and I was reaching out to people. And I understand that in this pandemic and in this situation we're in, I'm not the only one, right? Right. Tuesday night, there were seven seven of us on Zoom just, just relating. Saturday morning, tomorrow morning, I'll be there on Zoom. So for me, when I talk about fighting depression, it is a fight for me. I have to know the difference because I know my triggers, right? I know isolation is a huge one for me. It could be something different for somebody else. So I have to know the difference between putting on the brake and resting and fighting my way out of it. Mm -hmm. So usually my fight involves going against the grain and saying, I'm a fight to be around people because right now I don't want to be around anybody, but I know if I succumb to that, I'm isolating. Right. I also need to know I'm going to have to stop doing. No, I'm not going to create a new podcast. All I'm doing is setting up a Zoom call and push and go. There's no cost. I'm not trying to monetize it. I'm not, you don't have to, you don't owe me nothing. (laughs) Like it's drop-in daycare for adults. Like that's it. There's no drama. You not, we're not giving advice. You come express yourself. We have open conversation. We were done in 50 minutes. And we just went on with our lives. So it's like, once you know your triggers and your issues, and that's why having a therapist will help you figure those things out, you'll know how to combat those things when they come because it becomes a skill to fight it. And then um, lastly, because I know I'm talking a lot, I had to look at my depression and anxiety more like I would look at lupus or any chronic disease because that's what it is for me. It is not like I have a bad day every six months and my hair didn't turn out right and no no I can get into a real dark place and so for me um what was I saying oh I treat it like I had lupus or something like I have a flare-up right right because before I would get frustrated I would get sad and depressed and angry because I still get sad and depressed and angry so now it's like okay I'm having a flare-up so now that I have a flare-up what do you do to get back better you know you get some rest you take care of yourself you do these and so I have a physical list of things that I know works for me and then I have a mental list so like Sunday when I was having an issue I could say is this taking a shower and some aromatherapy that ain't gonna do it (laughs) 
<laughs> this vegging out with a podcast. That ain't gonna do it. You know, like I'm running through the list of things. Do I need to color? That ain't gonna cut it, you know. Wow. And I came to the issue that it was people that I needed. So, but you have to develop those tools for yourself right. and get the skills. I'm 10 years in now and it's work, but I don't have to pick up a drink to avoid the work. Um, and the work, you know, and it turned my mood instantly. Yeah. Sometimes I just go on Facebook. You might notice sometimes I say gratitude. What's it, like that, two days ago or yesterday, I said, what's something, a simple luxury that you have in your life? And if I can't be grateful for anything, I will ask other people on Facebook, tell me what you're grateful for. Mm -hmm. Once I get about a good three, four, five feet, you know, things from people, then it lifts my mood. So mm -hmm. that is a trick I use Facebook is to ask people for good things because it'll make me feel better. And then I can lift myself up. So I like, sometimes I have to trick myself into being in relationship with people without necessarily getting on the phone and saying, I don't feel good today. Please lift me up. You know, cause we're in a pandemic. A lot of people don't feel good. <laughs> and so like they might not have the bandwidth, but if I ask people, Hey, what's good with you today? Right. That changes my mood. And so I have little devices like that, that may not work for everybody for, but for my needs, through therapy and through doing the work, I know what can work for me. That is awesome. I, I thank you so much. Um, that was, um, you gave so much really awesome information. And I, even as a coach, a lot of the things that you share, I know, mm -hmm. but because it is your story and that is what this podcast is all about, other people sharing where they are, and I just kind of go along with it, but I just, I applaud the, mm -hmm. the, the way that you are positioning yourself, mm -hmm. the way that you have strategized to make life work for you without the addiction uh, coming back in because mm -hmm. we can kind of teeter with stuff sometime when it has been a problem for us, we'll play around with it and then we find ourselves again in cycles. So right. I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, one of the things that you shared though that I was not aware of was that um, going cold turkey to... Uh, to stop using alcohol. If you are an alcoholic, going cold turkey is one of the addictions that can actually kill you. I yeah. do not know. Yeah. And I don't say this to scare people from getting sober, right? But a chemical dependency on alcohol, like if you go cold turkey and you have gotten to the point where you're physically depending, dependent, like you're having shakes and like, you know, real physical dependency, it could cause seizures. It could cause death. You know what I'm saying? And so this is not to scare anybody from getting sober. This is to say that um, getting medically, um, medical advice on becoming sober is also very helpful. So the first person I told, actually, before, let me back up before I get to the rehab place. The first person I told was my primary care physician. Mm -hmm. I went to my primary care physician. They'd ask you, how many days a week are you drinking? 
I, you know, I used to say three to five socially, whatever. And then when she came in, I was like, oh, look, I'm drinking a whole lot more. Well, how much more? And I told her and she said, oh, this is what my doctor said. I had a good doctor at the time. She said, okay, you can get through this. My mom was an alcoholic. I used to drive her to AA when I was 16. She said, so you can get through it. She turned around, pulled out the yellow pages, wrote down the name of some treatment um, centers and some phone numbers said here, this is one I suggest. Also, you can go to a meeting today. Did I go to a meeting that day? No, 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 no. <laughs> but <laughs> she did not shame me. She gave me resources and told me I would be okay. Mm -hmm. And so through my own research, I learned about um, chemical, physical chemical dependency, right? So I just encourage people to treat it medically because I think or psychologically or the combination it's all that it's body mind soul right spirit it's all of that wow. it is all of that so treat it like it's all of that i had major vitamin vitamin deficiencies in my body like you can cause physical damage alcohol can affect all types of organs and stuff so if instead of just looking at it as a moral failing which we tend to do with addiction look at it medically, look at it clinically, look at it psychologically, look at it spiritually. Right. For those of you who are a people of faith, be thankful you're a person of faith. Yeah. Because when I went to treatment with these really brilliant doctors and nurses and lawyers and judges and all these people, I had never, I was 35. I had never been around people to this extent intimately that did not know who God was. And I was stunned. I did not know there were people who could not understand the concept of God, not didn't like God, was an atheist, just did not get the idea of faith, like had no concept of it. I was stunned. So even if you are a person of faith and you have a faith muscle, you are already out the gate in a lot stronger position than someone who doesn't. I'm telling you that right now. Cause they had to teach in the type of treatment I went to, they had to do a lot of educating because people were so smart. They would try to outsmart the, the wow. counselors and stuff. <laughs> and so, you know, and so spiritually they were not in a place to get the healing because they couldn't, they didn't know how to exercise the idea of believing in something you couldn't see. They always work towards it. Sometimes you just got to get some grace and mercy going on your side right. and you can't deserve it. Even if you, even if you deserve it, you may not feel like it, but you just need some grace and mercy. So medically, spiritually, um, look at it from all those different components and take, try and, and trust that the shame and guilt will subside after time. Mm -hmm. There are people who may never forgive you for things that you've done. You're going to have to forgive yourself at some point. Um, for me, as a person who felt like I didn't do anything to anybody, um, yeah, I was living a lie. So there are people who consider themselves my very close friends or family who were looking at me like, I don't know you. So what else don't I know about you? That is a trust factor. Right. And so like, it's a process, but believe me, get around some people who are in recovery and learn how to live a life in recovery. Um, do your reading, do your, use your Google machine, um, do your reading, your research and the compassion grows. So having lived in Chicago and New York, since I've been um, in recovery and seeing people where a lot of people say, Oh, he or she is just going to take that money. They begging me for on the street and buy some alcohol or some drugs, do you know that drink that you buy them might keep them alive? 
that is a shift in perspective. And that's why I can do storytelling and teach storytelling because my compassion for people has grown so much because I can relate to people who at some point I probably would have looked down on. Right. Um, and so I feel utterly in relationship with people now in a way that I didn't because um, I don't look down on myself because of it. So I don't look down on other people because of it. And so it has brought a level of humanity to me and compassion that I did not have before. Um, so know that there's some gifts of sobriety. There's some struggle with it, but you struggle in any way. Right. If you're drinking or taking drugs and you don't want to be, that's a struggle. Financially, the money, <laughs> right. that stuff ain't free. <laughs> right. Insurance does not, insurance pays for my antidepressant. It does not pay for wine. <laughs> in cosmos okay so if you're dealing with that see if your insurance can help you deal with them issues instead of paying for them out of your pocket at the bar and at the liquor aisle i mean so i'm being facetious but it's costing you in ways you don't even realize right because if you go out to dinner to a nice dinner and you're not throwing on a couple of glasses of wine or a bottle of this or something on top of it be like this dinner was less expensive right i know people that won't pay a hundred dollars for a concert ticket but it would be nothing for us you know four people to go out and blow two three hundred dollars on cocktails after working appetizers three hundred for i mean like it was no big deal you're young you're single we would go to the wine bar and 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 probably spend like $60 each or something. I mean, like, really? Right. Imagine just how much is a, a Coca-Cola versus a <laughs> bottle of wine? Exactly. I mean, seriously, there's some real tangibles to the benefits of, 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 of making some differences in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I, I cannot say enough about the the growth that I've seen in you and just what God is doing in your life and the different platforms and avenues that you're not only creating for yourself because while they are helpful for you you are also imparting life and hope and restoring joy and encouragement to other people mm -hmm. and so I, I love that about you, you that it is not just about you and you recognize that it's more than just you that is experiencing these uh these challenges I want to ask you uh how what are you open to people contacting you if they need any kind of encouragement or would like to know more about your story are you open to that I am open to it I will tell you that I am what I'm most likely to do which I believe is a great help to people is to help you find help right because I, as inspirational as I may be, I just told you, you know, Sunday I was on my own verge, right? My own edge. And part of getting well also means creating boundaries for oneself. One thing I learned in treatment is boundaries is putting the doorknob on the inside where you let people in and out of your life instead of having it on the outside where people are coming in and out of your life. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people with addiction problems have very bad boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, you're not saying no, so you're getting overwhelmed or whatever. So I'm not saying I'm saying no, but I know a boundary for me is that my 
ability to counsel or help is limited, right? So what I can help people do is encourage you to help you find resources. So that meant last week, um, we're in a pandemic, so there might not be live recovery meetings. I will, I will sign up and, and find a virtual meeting and go with you. I will sit on psychology today. If you're looking for a therapy, sex, therapist, psychology today is a great place. There's also therapy for black girls. If you're looking for a black therapist, that is up to you. Um, I go, and you can still see pictures on psychology today if you're looking for someone African-American or a person of color or a Christian or whatever else, you can search for all those factors. I will sit there with you and go through psychology today and help you find someone who may be appropriate for help for you. I will give you tips and tools. I will talk to you. I do not counsel. So that's the only thing I want people to be very aware of is that I do not offer counseling. Um, and my biggest suggestion will always be if you are financially able to get help, if you are not financially able to help you find the resources to get help because they exist. There are a lot of therapists who will do sessions for $10. It's called a sliding scale. Wow. So there is very little in the way of excuses. Um, there are virtual apps. There are all types of ways to get help. So I'm a big proponent of that. Um, but I will talk to people. I will listen. I will try to give you help and point you on the way of resources. Um, so no, I don't mind it at all. I don't mind it at all. What is the best resource to use to connect to you? Um, you can email me at uh, sydney.plant at gmail.com. That's S-Y-D-N-E-Y dot P-L-A-N-T at gmail.com. That is if you have a request for help or you have opportunities available for me. But anyway, <laughs> I teach storytelling. I do all types of other things. Um, um, or you want to interview me or whatever. So yeah, those are, um, that's a good avenue to reach me is through um, email, you know, and I'll try to be responsive. Again, it is not, I, I just want to let people know, please don't feel bad if, if I'm not on the phone with you, I'm not a crisis line. I, you know, like, because like you said, I do have a lot of women after doing women of candor and some of the work I've done with my podcast and other things, I do have a lot of people, not a lot, but people reach out to me and I also reach out to other people. Wow. So there are women who came through my program, you know, through the show Women of Candor that I'm like, girl, because of the story you told, I know you know what I'm going through. I need to talk to you. And so I have, I posted on Facebook yesterday, this has been the year of the sister friend for me, where I'm able to pick up the phone and call um, several different women when I have needs and I want to be that person for other people. Um, but I will let you know that I just wanted to put that disclaimer out there that I cannot heal you. I can encourage you and I can point you in the right direction of resources because um, again, unhealed people can't heal people. I think I am, um, I'm functioning better, <laughs> but I have my days, yeah. you know? And so sometimes for all of us, boundaries, when you're locked up and cooped up like we are, perspective is so big. You know, there are days where this is like a blessing and there are days where this is like uh, the biggest fear in the world is getting sick and dying and the next day, you know, so just be cognizant that even though you're dealing with your stuff, other people around you might as well. So that's why I really um, 
encourage professional help because and good professional help. I know very little about my therapist, even though I've known her for three years. Mm-hmm. It's my time. We, and we have a good time. But you know, I've been to therapists where I'm like, oh, girl, you telling me your business and I, I gotta turn around and pay you. This don't work. I'm serious. And I, I'm just gonna put it that way. If you go to therapy and you find yourself giving support, because as I'm talking specifically to black women. I don't know who's listening, but I'm going to talk specifically to black women because it has happened to me on more than one occasion. I was 24. I went to therapy and another sister was like, girl, you're strong. I took three buses in the winter in Michigan to come see you. <laughs> you're telling me I'm strong and you telling me you come in a little late because you was watching Eddie Long this morning and you want to just kiki and kick it with me. Mm-mm. And so I'm telling you, this because it has happened to me a few times you can be comfortable with your therapist but try it is my preference to have professional boundaries so even if you know people in your life who provide therapy sometimes we think that comfort is the best thing um you really want objectivity and support right um so i'm just telling that's for me i don't need you know lolita we kick it we coach I believe you have the professional, I know you have boundaries, right? You're a person with boundaries. Everybody doesn't have boundaries. So if you are in any therapy or counseling or coaching situation and you don't believe boundaries are appropriate, run. It does not, don't worry about hurting anybody's feelings because if you're paying for it, especially, it's for you. Right. And boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. That does not, you want to go to somebody, you can tell them whatever because legally, they can't tell anybody. Right. I've never had anything come back to me. I've had um, a psychiatrist when I was in <laughs> Chicago, the, the, they were literally in the building where I lived. That high rise where I was getting drunk and everything, didn't know there were AA meetings in that building, didn't know. Northwestern University Medical Center had offices in the building where I was living and I could like go downstairs, go up to elevator, other elevator in the building where I lived and went to AA. That's how God had it set up for me. I didn't have to leave the house because I don't like to go anywhere in the winter. But <laughs> I would see my psychiatrist like coming in and out of the building, like whatever. That woman wouldn't even look at me and wouldn't speak to me. And what I'm saying is she was somebody with a very strong boundary as far as anonymity and stuff like that. If you go to a meeting, Everybody, if you go to what they call a closed meeting where everybody is there to be sober, um, nobody's gonna run and tell you your business because what was they doing there? You know, what I mean? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm just putting these things out there not to promote them because that's not what you're supposed to do, but I'm just trying to dismantle some of the things that might be impediments to people. Yeah. Your anonymity is safe in those environments. So, for those of y'all who don't want your business out in the street and you don't want to get up on a stage and tell your business like I do, you don't have to. Yeah. Professionals keep your confidence, doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists social workers, those people will keep your confidence. They are legally obligated to. Um, and then also people in recovery communities, especially those um, that are based around anonymity, they will keep your anonymity. Because again, why are they talking about you if they were there? <laughs> like y'all all in the same boat. And those are some of the um, best relationships you can form because they start, they don't start with any pretense. Right. 
everybody comes in here. It's not like going to church and I'm not down in church, but I'm saying, you know how we do that. Hey, sister, such and such. Hey girl, how you doing? Uh, uh, uh. Give me some love. And you do that and everybody's dressed up. But if you go in a meeting and somebody is sitting there and they like, I didn't come home for three days and love my kids. It's like, well, you're not faking the funk. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> I'm being, I'm exaggerating, but maybe not. So you start off in relationship with people where you can be real. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I have such less of a appreciation for small talk after building those kind of relationships that are built off of actually having a deficit or, you know, some, some bad quality is how you bond with somebody else. It's a, it's a very freeing thing. So sorry, I, I can go on and on about this. I'm passionate about it, but. Well, I just, I just want to say again, thank you so much for coming on because if, if people would just listen until we stopped, I would keep going. Too. <laughs> <laughs> you mean nobody wants to hear me talk for three hours? Okay. No, they don't, <laughs> but they should. <laughs> there is so much good meat. There is so much wisdom, so much value in everything that you shared. And I just want to say thank you again and kudos to thank you, you for all of your great success. Keep up the great work that you're doing. Thank Continue you. to go on to help others. And to my podcast audience, if you find yourself in a situation, please do not forget Cindy. Sydney Plant. She is an amazing woman. She loves God. She is not a, um, a super spiritual uh, or religious is what I will say. She is not a religious person, but she is a spiritual woman that can give that level of guidance as well. She talked about God's faith and grace and that he is real. And those are some of the building blocks for uh, our healing process to take place. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're listening today, to not forget to reach out to her if this is an area where you struggle, or if you uh, don't reach out to her, but take in some of the, these wisdom nuggets that she, uh, that she laid down for whomever, whosoever will to pick them up. So thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you again on another episode of Navigating Life with Coach Lowe. Thank you again, Sydney. For thank you for having me. You are more than welcome. God bless you. And thank you. Have a good day, love. Mwah. Mwah. Thank you. <laughs>